We are going to be in Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to be as we continue our journey through the letter to the Galatians. And where we're going to be in chapter 5 is the start of this third section of the look through the book of Galatians. But what we started with is looking at this letter that Paul writes to not just a single church, but actually a collection of churches. Galatia wasn't a town, but it was a region. And Paul writes to this church because they have been perpetrated by those that wanted to teach another gospel. There were these Jews that came from Jerusalem that wanted to teach to these young Gentile Christians that you needed to not only accept Jesus as your Savior in order to have salvation, but you needed to also follow the law of Moses. You needed to have things added to your salvation in order to actually and truly be saved. And what Paul shares is that this is not another gospel. In fact, the word gospel just means good news. This isn't good news at all. This is terrible news because it means the perfect work of Christ that he did on the cross was not complete. Him saying it is finished, apparently it had a dot, dot, dot. It was almost finished. But that's not at all what Jesus communicated. And Paul is trying to share that it was actually by grace through faith that we were saved. It wasn't through any kind of works that we could do at all. It was simply believing in him, which we were uh, saved. And so Paul writes this letter, which was really all about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw Paul sharing his personal testimony, his experience that he had personally with the grace of Christ, his one-on-one conversations he had with Jesus. And what I shared with you as we studied through that is that this is a spot where we can look at our own personal testimony. What does your journey with Jesus look like? Because the beautiful thing about sharing your testimony with someone is they can't argue with it. They can argue all kind of teaching and doctrine, but they can't argue my own personal testimony because it's my story. And so Paul begins with his own personal story. And yet, as we share our stories, oftentimes that can be subjective. Your story is your story, but what about me? How does this relate and tie back to me? And so Paul transitions from there and he begins to teach an objective truth. He goes back to scripture and he gives us doctrine or teaching. And where he goes is all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament and the story of Abraham. He shares there how grace actually came before the law. That Abraham's righteousness was actually given to him because of his faith. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 says that he believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so what Paul says is 400 years before the law was given, grace existed. Man was saved. God's initial plan was to actually save by grace. But who demanded the law? We did. (laughs) We wanted rules. We wanted another way that we could do it on our own. And what the law shows perfectly and completely is you can't. You can't do it on your own. In fact, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and the reality is we can't even keep the top 10 list. We get there, and we're like, I can't. Yeah, I can't do that. I can't do. And so this is what Paul is going to share, is that we can't even keep the top 10. And so he goes back, and he shows that it was grace that we were saved from the very beginning through faith. And now, in this, sur- this third section, we're going to see Paul taking this instruction, this doctrine. It's great to have the knowledge, but if you can't apply the knowledge, you don't have any wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And so, in chapters 5 and 6, we won't get all the way through chapter 5 today, but over the next several weeks, we'll get through these two chapters. Paul is going to give them the practical application of of grace in their life. 
How does this look? How does this play out? He's going to begin here in verse 1 of chapter 5, which is really the key verse in the entire letter to the Galatians. happens right here in verse 1 where Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so what Paul's going to say is, Stand fast, therefore. Now, because you guys are Bible students, you know now, anytime we read the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it there for? It is there to point us back to the previous section of Scripture, back to chapter 4. And what Paul was saying at the end of our study last week was we had these two different natures, one through the flesh and one through the spirit. And they're shown in type in the Old Testament through the Hagar relationship Abraham had, the work of the flesh as uh, she gave birth to Ishmael. And then the Sarah relationship, the one that was through promise where God said, I'm going to give you a son, not because of your righteousness, but because of my faithfulness to you, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And so we see the son of promise that comes through Isaac. And what Paul says there is, we are now children of the promise. We are the sons and daughters of the bondwoman, children not of the bondwoman, excuse me, but of the free woman. And so as we are now living this life of freedom as children of the free woman, not enslaved any longer, he writes verse 1 of chapter 5, and he says, therefore, stand fast. That word in some of your Bibles may also be persevere in liberty. Now, as we read that, some of you may scratch your head and go, wait a minute, I thought it was freedom, but I'm supposed to persevere in freedom? I'm supposed to stand, I have to work for, I have to try to stay in a spot of freedom. It seems like these two ideas are juxtaposed. There's a tension that exists. And yet when you go further in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, the writer there says that we need to strive in order to obtain rest or be diligent as we seek rest. Now that seems to also be contradictory. Why would I strive to enter into the rest? Why would I have to try to be restful? Well, the reality is uh, we have two natures. You all, you all know this, that positionally, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are uh, for all of eternity secured at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Nothing can take you away from His hand. Nothing. And yet, practically, if we're being honest, uh, we're all kind of working this thing out daily, aren't we? Like, positionally, I'm secured for all of eternity, but my daily walk looks like me working it out. With fear and trembling. There's stuff that I'm struggling with. I'm working through. I'm trying. And what Paul says is, I want you to persevere. Stand fast in that place. Be diligent in what you're doing. Be mindful because you are a dual citizen. You are a citizen of heaven and also of earth for this time being. And so this is why he says to us, stand fast in liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to that yoke of bondage. Now, for many of you, you don't have any idea what a yoke is because you didn't grow up on a farm. You may be thinking I'm talking about chickens, but it's not about chickens at all. A yoke was actually a wood beam that they would lay across the shoulders of a team of oxen. You'd have two oxen, and the picture up on the screen shows you an example of a yoke, and they would tie the two together. Now, this idea of a yoke of bondage is one that came up back through our study through Acts that we covered a little over a year ago, Acts chapter 15. 
And here, this same debate was happening inside the church. Should these new Gentile Christians have to follow the Torah, the law of Moses, or should they be able to be free and have liberty? And as they're having this Jerusalem council there in Acts 15, there's James and John and Peter, and they're all there debating this. This is what Peter steps up and says in verse 10 of Acts 15. He says, therefore... Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So when they look at the law, what Peter steps up and says is, here's this yoke of bondage, the law, all of our Old Testament. And the reality is, none of us were able to do it. Not only us, but all of our fathers failed miserably at trying to adhere to the law. Read your Old Testament. They failed over and over and over again. And so Peter's saying, why do you want to yoke yourselves or have them yoke themselves to this thing that we weren't able to actually adhere to or to do? And what Jesus says along this same line in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, he says that, this of the Pharisees, he says that they want to come and uh, tie people to burdens that they weren't able to bear. Verse 4 of chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus says, They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them want with one of their fingers. Now, going back to the farm reference, as they would yoke the oxen together, they would then attach them to a plow, and they would call the plow the burden. So here they are yoked to one another, pulling behind them a burden. Now it, it hopefully begins to make sense. As you cruise just a little bit to the left, if you followed me to Matthew 23, this is what Jesus says referring to yokes and burdens. He says in verse 28 of Matthew 11, very famously, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, notice with me, he doesn't say you will have no yoke and no burden whatsoever. Oftentimes, as we go and we proceed through life, we wonder, man, why does this feel like a burden? The reality is, even for the Christian, we are going to have burdens. We are going to have things that we have to deal with. Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to take all that away from you. What he's saying is, I'm going to yoke myself to you. I'm going to tie myself to you, and then I'm going to lighten the burden. And so in this example, uh, in ancient days, they would not take two oxen that were actually of the same strength and yoke them together. What a good farmer would do is he would take a strong oxen, one that was built for pulling heavy burdens, and he would tie them, yoke them to a weaker, less strong, less mature oxen. And what would happen is, for the little oxen coming alongside the big strong one, is they would begin to think, hey, look at me, pulling my burden, look at me go. When the reality was, it was the larger, stronger oxen that was doing the bulk of the work. This is what Jesus is saying. Let me come alongside you. I'll take the majority of the load. You'll feel, you'll be able to hop and skip like that, that little character from the Looney Tunes, you know, yeah, 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 look, we're, you know, so excited to be able to come alongside the big dog. Here's the big oxen able to come alongside us to pull us along so that we can mature in this relationship. And then you think, as we continue this idea through Scripture, what does the Lord tell us but that we are to come alongside one another, bearing each other's burdens, right? 
as we grow in Christ, as he matures us, we can now attach ourselves to others, yoke ourselves to them so that we can help in their time of burden, to lighten the load, to bear one another's burdens. And then taking it full circle, consider with me the cross. Right? Is, is here's Jesus, and he takes our yoke upon himself completely, bearing literally the beam of the cross, which I would submit to you was a yoke of burden and bondage that he took on once and for all for you and I so that we would have an opportunity, so that we would be able to then yoke ourselves to him. He took all of the burden of the law away upon his shoulders. All the shame, all the pain, all the guilt, all the regret, he took on himself bearing that burden for you and I. Now, back to chapter 5, verse 2. You see now why we're not going to get all the way through chapter 5. Verse 2, indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you becoming circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Here's a little bit of Bible math that I've shared with you several times. This is what Paul is saying is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That there is literally nothing that I can do to make up for all the work that he did on my behalf. I can't earn it in any way, shape, or form. What Paul's saying is if you tried to earn it, you're going to essentially negate all the work of Christ. If you want to establish all these rules for yourself, here's the reality about setting up rules and regulations. At some point in time, the rules you establish for yourself will also condemn you. You will not be able to continue to follow along with everything you set up that you think is going to add for your righteousness. Now, when I think back to my life before Christ, I will tell you that I was a prolific speeder. I was very, very good at driving entirely too fast. Everywhere I went. Why? Because I got places to go, people to see. I'm a busy man. And so I would drive entirely too fast everywhere I would go. And yet in freedom, the Lord has actually relieved me from this yoke of bondage to feel like I had to speed. And now I'm a law abider. I drive the speed limit. And the truth is, I've told you this several times, and uh, even if I didn't obey the speed limit all the time, I wouldn't tell you because I've already told you <laughs> I obey the speed limit. So I obey the speed limit, right? But if you think about, as I've established this as a rule for myself, what happens when I come to the huge metropolis of Westfield, Illinois? Where throughout my childhood, I remember in Westfield, I don't even know if they still have a cop there anymore, but they used to have a guy that would sit right at the edge of town. And there was a spot where you went from 30 to then 55. I could see it down there before I got to the first curves. And I would begin to speed up, driving along with my family. I'm a law abider, so I'm driving exactly 30. But I hit that gas just a little too soon. I begin to speed up on my way to 55 mile an hour to go around the hairpin turns because that's how the big van drives. So look out, here comes Black Betty making the curves quick. And as I go around the curves, I see the lights behind me. I get pulled over by the Westfield cop. And as he pulls me over, he says, son, I, I clocked you doing 45 and a 30. You hadn't made it to the 55 sign. Now, I would say, look, I'm coming from my hometown, from Casey, Illinois. And while I was there... I just want you to know I did not murder anybody. I might have thought about it, but I didn't kill anybody. And the, the cop would say, 
what in the world are you talking about? I pulled you over for speeding. Yeah, but you know what? While I was there filling up all $200 worth at the Casey's to get gas, I did not reach over and put my hand into the cash register and take out a wad of cash. I didn't steal anything from the Casey's. What in the world? I pulled you over for speeding. Because what I'm trying to do is I want to defend all the times I've followed and obeyed the law, but it cannot make up for the time I broke the law. What Paul's saying here is if you want to live by the letter of the law, you must keep it entirely, completely. And so the very law that you tried to live by to build your own righteousness through will actually turn around and condemn you. And so what we see is breaking one law means that you've actually broken them all. That's what Paul is writing. But verse 5, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And so what we see is my righteousness is solely and completely in the fact that Jesus died for everything. My faith in him is where all my righteousness comes from. Any righteousness I try to produce on my own, what Isaiah says, is that it is as filthy rags. Now, a little bit PG-13 is when Isaiah writes that, he is referring to a menstrual cloth. That's the best I can do when I want to make my own righteousness. That's the best I can produce on my own. And yet through the work of Christ and the work he did on the cross, he gives me a robe of righteousness. I can be wholly righteous because of him. And the resultant of that, what does that look like in my life when I realize what he did for me? It looks like love. That's what Paul says here. It's faith working through love. How am I doing can often be answered in how am I loving. Jesus says in John chapter 13 verse 35, this is how you know my disciples that they should love one another. My love will actually show because of the grace that I've already been shown. And grace, what it does in a Christian's life is it actually produces works. James chapter 2 verse 17 says that faith without works is dead. Now, lots of times we grab a hold of that verse and say, you see, this is why I have to work for my salvation. But the reality is we don't have a works-based faith. We have faith-based works. There's a mile of difference between the two. I do work for Christ, not because I have to, but because I get to. Because he has given it all for me. I, I look at the grace that he's poured out for me, the picture of him laying it all on the line for me. And I go, man, he loved me so much. How can I not love? How can I hang on to these things that I want to hang on to? And so the reality is works are a natural flow of the love that Christ has already shown to us. Now, verse 7, Paul says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so here we see Paul giving a a sports reference, a sports analogy. And the Apostle Paul, it's important to understand he loved sports, right? Especially the Olympic Games. He was oftentimes making references to runners and running. And what I love about Scripture is, and ladies, I want you to take note of this, is God loves sports. He does. He loves it. It's throughout Scripture. In fact, baseball in particular. If you go, you want some proof, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. He starts the book by saying, and in the big inning, 
Yeah, so many of you are going to get that way later, and it's going to be funny. I've been chuckling about it all week. Uh, some of you just don't have a funny bone at all, and so that's on you. You worked that out with Jesus. But in the beginning is how the Lord starts it off. But Paul, going back to a running reference, he tells them, you ran well. Who hindered you or who literally cut you off and stopped you from obeying the truth? Now, if you think about running a race, just a couple weeks ago, uh, we had the opportunity to take the kids over to the state track meet, which was just an awesome time to go. Uh, we didn't go to the girls' meet because it was rainy, and I'm a fair weather fan, and so I waited till it was beautiful last weekend. And we went to the boys' state track meet, and we got there just in time for the start of the 3,200 meters. And man, it was awesome. I mean, the crowd was there, and people were excited, and they were, they were fired up to see the state track meet. And so we're all there cheering on teams. We have no idea who these kids are, but we're cheering for people. And the race takes off, and this young man, man, he begins well. He gets off out in front of everybody. And he's from me to the back of the church, ahead of the entire field, for the whole race until the last lap. And what happens is there are two young men who come around the outside. They saved enough for the end, and now they've got their eye on a prize. They leave this other kid in the dust. They're taken off like a couple of gazelles. And one young man, he proves himself to be able to outlast all of them. He has got his eye on the prize, and he is a fair distance, probably 25 meters ahead of everybody in the field. As he rounds the third turn, and then he rounds the fourth turn, the crowd is on their feet. I mean, people are cheering this young man who's about to win a state title on. And then he does what every running coach would tell their player never to do, their runner never to do. Don't look back. He turns back to look over his shoulder, and he begins to stumble. And here's the crowd, like everyone's taking a deep breath as he stumbles forward. It was in slow motion. And what you see is the kid completely laying himself out on the home stretch just meters before the finish line. Wiped out to finish second in the state. Heartbreaking. But then I think about my life and how often this very analogy plays out where it's eyes on the prize, all about Jesus. Man, I'm going for it. And then I turn around to see, how's everybody else doing? How's the rest of the field behind me? Are they catching up? Maybe they're not doing as well as me. I'm about to win. And then I fall flat on my face because we take our eyes off the prize. This is the spot the Apostle Paul is sharing with them. You started so well. You've taken your eyes off the prize. You shifted away from Jesus. And in verse 8, he says, This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Christ didn't ask you to take your eyes off the prize. In fact, the question he's asking is, Where did you get this from? Where did you get this material from? Was it from my word? And you think about how many cults start off where they begin something in Scripture and then they begin to twist it and turn it. And I would encourage you, anytime uh, you have someone show up at your door, maybe they're a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and they want to share, uh, ask them this, um, did you get that from the Bible? And they will say, I got this from this pamphlet right here, our Watchtower magazine. We got it right here in this flyer. No, no, you didn't hear me. Did you get that from the Bible? Where did you get that from? Now, for me, it's awfully easy to pick on those groups. But I will tell you some of the biggest things that I have had to untangle in my life and in my walk were things that I did not hear from any of those groups, but instead heard them from the church. How often we take 
things and thoughts and ideas, oftentimes well-meaning, and then we twist them. Phrases like, God helps those who help themselves. Really? Because that's not actually in Scripture at all. Like, not even close. What you see is over and over again, Jesus is about the business of helping people who can't help themselves. They can't help themselves at all. And he's getting involved in their lives because he is always for the underdog. And so many times these misconceptions we get just frankly aren't from the Bible, which is why I encourage you to stick to Scripture. Stick to the Word. Spend your time in the Bible. We'll get all kinds of crazy notions in our head. What Paul's saying is, was this from the one who called you? Is this the one who called you into salvation? Or are you busy looking behind and all around again? Stick to Scripture. Now, verse 9, Paul is going to transition from a sports analogy to my second favorite analogy, uh, food. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, what you know about leaven is throughout Scripture, uh, it is a type. Leaven is a type of sin. So anytime leaven is mentioned in the Bible, it is a type of sin. Just like when I shared with you, Egypt is a type of the world, which is fascinating when you realize God brought his children out of Egypt, out of the world, and what did he tell them to do? But take bread without leaven. Take unleavened bread. In other words, remove the sin from your house as you head into the promised land. And so what Paul's saying here is that a little leaven can leaven the entire lump. You ladies who cook know that if you put just a little bit of yeast in dough, what happens is it rises the whole lump. It all rises. It's amazing how quickly leaven can permeate. So too can happen with rules and regulations in our life. That we can set up all these rules in order to establish righteousness. But the reality is, as we establish self-righteousness, it is also self-condemning. What I mean by that is, uh, I could have had a New Year's resolution at the beginning of the year. At 4 a.m. every morning, I'm going to get up, I'm going to spend an hour with Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to journal, because that's what pastor said to do, so I'm going to do it. And so I do really well until last week. And summer hit, and my alarm didn't go off. I've been doing so good with Jesus. I've been learning. He's been hearing from me. I've been hearing from him. This is great. And then I didn't get up at 4. Instead, I got up at 5.30. And now I'm scrambling to get to work. Now then the following day, I'm tired again. I can't get myself out of bed. And I begin to have this idea that, man, now all of a sudden my prayers aren't heard like what they were before. I don't feel as connected to him. I don't, I don't feel love like what I felt before. And the very discipline that I tried to set up for myself, I began to realize that was actually self-righteousness. And the problem with self-righteousness is it's also self-condemning. When the reality is, Jesus never asked me to do any of that stuff in the first place, and he never condemned me in the second place. Now, the spending time with him, is it a great idea? Absolutely. I want to be careful to point out the root word in the word disciples, discipline. It is great to have disciplines. The problem is, and where it becomes bad, is when I establish this as a way of self-righteousness. Disciplines in my life are good because they're good for me, not because I need this for my relationship for him to love me. And so we have to be careful of the leaven that can permeate. Verse 10, I have confidence in you, 
in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And so what Paul is now warning them about is these teachers that have come in, as they've given you false teaching, they're going to have to bear that false teaching. The condemnation that comes for them teaching you incorrectly, they're going to bear that. Which, by the way, as a Bible teacher, is terrifying. When I read James chapter 3 and he says, Let not many of you be teachers because you have to suffer, you have to suffer a double judgment, I think pretty long and hard about teaching the Word of God. And when it comes to Paul instructing his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is why I believe he writes this to Timothy in verse 15. He says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Whether you're teaching the Bible in a devotion at home or in front of people or just sharing the word of God, it is important for us to share it rightly and correctly because we do not want to lead people astray. And the reality is even a little bit astray, even one degree can make a complete difference. Now, if you think about a surveyor, I know I'm an engineering geek, and so I'm going to give you a surveyor example. But if you consider a surveyor surveying this property to the west, if they started their way around, but they started off just a half a degree, what you'd find out is by the time they tried to close the loop on the survey, uh, they would end up just a few inches off. It wouldn't be all that far off, but it would be off a little bit. And yet, if you took that same degree of difference and you decided to survey uh, Interstate 70... And you began in Greenup, and you were going to make your way all the way to Columbus, Ohio, on I-70, surveying your way down through there. But you started just a half a degree off. It wasn't far. I had good intentions. Uh, what you would find is uh, you'd probably wind up somewhere in uh, Kentucky, which, by the way, is not Columbus, Ohio, for any of you that are geographically challenged. You would find yourself way off from where you intended to go. So too is true when we share scripture, when we study and we get ourselves off just a half a degree, which is why it is good for us to stick with scripture, to stay close to the word. Now, verse 11, Paul says, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So what Paul says is, if I'm sharing things falsely, like that you must have circumcision, why is it that these people are now coming in to persecute me that are sharing the same thing? These guys are wanting to accuse me of the very thing that they're doing, which is why I believe Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 16, we need to beware of the leaven, not just of the Pharisees, but of the Sadducees as well. Beware the leaven of both of these groups. They will establish all kinds of rules and regulations, even under the guise of freedom. Now, the Sadducees in that day were the far left wing. They were as liberal as you could get. They were materialists. They didn't even believe in Scripture. They looked at the Word of God as a way to essentially control people. And so, there's leaven, obviously, in that. And yet, the Pharisees, they were the far right-wing, hardcore, conservative law abiders that followed every letter of the law. They at least attempted to or attempted to project that into other people's lives. And what Christ said is, there's leaven in both groups. There's leaven on both sides. And so much is true even to this day. This is probably going to upset some of you. Perhaps this will resonate with others. But when we look at the far right and the far left, much like the Pharisee and the Sadducee, there is leaven in both sides. There is a missing 
of both sides. And in that day, in Jesus' time, the only thing those two groups could actually agree upon is they hated the message of the cross. They despised it. Why did they hate the message of the cross? Because the message of the cross is one of denial of self. That's different than self-denial, by the way. Self-denial, our country loves that. Both sides actually love that. Self-denial tells me if I work hard enough, I can be skinny and fit into my jeans from 1997, right? Self-denial tells me uh, that I can achieve advancement in my workplace if I just work hard enough and apply myself to that. We love that. But denial of self thinks absolutely nothing of myself. I put others first, not even considering the ramifications for me. That's the message of the cross. And to both sides, it is offensive. And by the way, to my flesh, it is very offensive. When I really consider what denial of self looks like and what wars inside of me when I consider it, it is offensive to me. Yet this is precisely what I am called to do. Deny myself. Take up the cross of Christ and to seek him and him alone. And so this is what Paul is saying is that if we go to one side or the other, then the offense of the cross has ceased. Now then, verse 12, Paul writes, And I could wish that those who troubled you would even cut themselves off. Now, this particular verse is where Paul goes a little bit from PG-13 closer to rated R in Scripture. What he is saying is, is they try to share uh, the idea of circumcision with them, that that's necessary for salvation. Uh, Paul says, um, I wish that instead of circumcising, they would just go ahead and cut it off. Like, completely. Like, emasculate. So that's an interesting verse to teach. All right, verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so what Paul says is that we've been called not to the law, but to liberty. But inside that liberty, he gives a warning. It is important for us to make sure you do not use your liberty as a license to sin. And this is always a spot we get tripped up. We, we realize this liberty we have in Christ. We can go let it rip, tater chip. But be careful that it doesn't actually cause you to sin or to stumble others. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, is that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are edifying Not all things actually build me up. There's lots of things I can do, but is it the right thing to do? Does it actually encourage or build me up? And what uh, I like this phrase, it is that the dog you feed is a dog that will win. It's not from the Bible, don't worry, but it's not a degree off. It's tied to scripture, it's okay. But what that means is we've got these two dogs, this dog of the flesh and this dog of the spirit. And when I feed the flesh, what happens is the flesh begins to have victory in my life. But when I feed the Spirit, that begins to have victory on the other side. How then do I feed the Spirit is the question. Through what Paul says in verse 13 is serve one another. You want to know one of the best ways to get yourself out of a depression or a spiritual jam? It is through service. It is through helping others. Doing something bigger than yourself. If you struggle in that arena, I can assure you, it is a way to get yourself out of that spot is to go in and actually do something bigger than yourself. 
to serve one another and to do it in love. In verse 14, Paul writes, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's Paul grabbing a hold of a teaching of Jesus. When he was approached, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is likened to it from Leviticus 19. You should love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets, everything that's in this Old Testament, it can be summarized by loving God and loving people. Now, then we bring that verse out, and what happens is questions get asked, right? Luke chapter 10, as Jesus is teaching on this, a young man comes up, and he says, well, then who's my neighbor? I should love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor then, Mr. Smarty? So Jesus begins to share one of the most famous parables in all the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is going to share with them, who's your neighbor? And the story goes, many of you remember it from Bible school, is the story is there was a man headed from Jericho to Jerusalem. He was walking along the way. And what you uh, might not know is geographically, this was a major expedition. Jericho, still to this day, is the lowest city in the world below sea level, 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem sits 2,500 feet above sea level. This is about a 15-mile journey that is going to go uphill more than 3,000 feet. And at that time, the road was twisty and turny and full of bad people who were looking to mug you along the way. And the ancient world called the road from Jericho to Jerusalem the bloody road because so many people were attacked along the way. Now, Jesus says there was this man that was headed from Jericho to Jerusalem. And as he was on the way, he was, in fact, attacked, beaten robbed, left for dead along the side of the road. Now, shortly after this has taken place, there are three different characters that come along the road that pass by this man, the first of which we're told was a priest. And the priest, rather than walking alongside and helping this man, he walked to the other side of the road. Now, it's really easy for us to get upset with the priest and think how bad of a guy this guy was. But the reality is if, if he was a priest headed from Jericho to Jerusalem, he was probably going for a very good reason. In fact, priests in that day would serve in the temple one uh, month out of the year. And so he was no doubt headed to Jerusalem for his one month, his time of allotted service to work, to do stuff for God there in the temple. And what this priest probably knew is that if he stops to help that man, and that man is actually dead, remember he looked dead, that he would have made himself ceremonially unclean. He would have been no longer able to do the work that God gave him to do in the temple. And so by walking to the other side, what he was saying is, look, I got stuff to do for Yahweh. I've got God work to do. I can't be bogged down with this man who may or may not need my help because I have things to do. Now, as I was criticizing this man in my mind, I wonder how many times have I said, I can't stop and help because I got Jesus' work to do. I would love to stop in this situation, but don't you know, I've got stuff to do for Jesus. I mean, I got all kinds of Jesus things. I can't stop and be Jesus when I got things to do for Jesus. And yet this is us. Lots of times we have ourselves so focused on what we have to do for the Lord, we forget to go be him with skin on it for someone who's in a time of need. 
Now, the second man to pass by, we're told, was a Levite. And the Levite, in that day, you might know that uh, if you were to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. But not all Levites were priests. But the Levites, as a tribe, were one of the most well-respected. They were called the, the, the uh, gift of God. They were like God taking a, a tithe over all the children. And so God said, this crew is mine. They belong to me. And so the, the group of the Levites, they were successful businessmen, and, and they would be called to help at times of need. And so here's a Levite who no doubt had helped many a people just like the man alongside the road. And yet what he knew is that on this road is that this man may just be pretending. What if he's not really hurt? What if he jumps up and he hurts me when I stop and hurt him? Or what if he's got a bunch of his buddies along the roadside and, and they come out of the wilderness and they attack me and hurt me? And this is the reality when it comes to us stepping in to help people. For many of you, you know when you've stepped in to help that oftentimes you're going to get hurt. And so what happens is because we don't want to get hurt again. I don't want to get attacked again. I don't want those raiders to come alongside the road again. I steer clear of helping. I go to the other side of the road because I, I can't be hurt like that again. I can't be let down like that again. Now, a little piece of encouragement, maybe you won't see it this way, is that if you decide to step in and help anyone, I can promise you uh, with almost 100% certainty is they will probably at some point in time hurt you. <laughs> they probably won't handle your help the way you think they're going to handle your help. It probably will not be received the way you would hope that it would be received. But there is no excuse not to help. And so the third man on the journey was the Samaritan who did not think of himself. In fact, for any a decent Jew, they wouldn't even speak to Samaritan. Even if this man was half dead on the road, he wouldn't want a Samaritan's help because they, they would pray in the synagogue, Lord, thank you for not making me a woman or a slave or a Samaritan dog. They viewed them. They looked down on their kind. But here's a Samaritan willing to help someone who probably at some point looked down on him, spoke ill of him, and yet he was willing to work for him, to help him. Why? Because what Colossians 3.23 tells us to do is we're to work as if unto the Lord, not unto man. When I begin to work as if unto the Lord and not waiting for someone else's approval, it becomes far easier to do. No longer am I concerned with how they're going to receive it, how they're going to repay me, how they're going to treat me in return. I begin to look to my heavenly Father and say that doesn't matter a bit because I'm doing it for Jesus. Him and him alone. The one who gave his life for me on the cross, he's the one I'll work for. I'll step into this situation. I'll get my hands dirty in this spot knowing I might get hurt because he is worth it. Now then finally and lastly, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The reality is in our life, and you know this to be true, is that when you are destined to bite at and eat at others, when you're determined to speak down about others, the reality is it's going to leave you ate up. You're going to actually consume yourself in the process. Now, conversely, when we are gracious and we give out grace, what we receive is grace. Giving out grace often ends up we receive grace Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
they shall receive mercy. And when you think about what mercy looks like in our life, it's actually compassion in action. We are called as a people to be ones who lead in mercy. One last place to go in Scripture before we wrap up. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Hadn't ventured into the Old Testament. I knew you were missing it a little bit. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. The Lord says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Not to just give out mercy, but to actually love it. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I don't even like mercy, let alone loving mercy. But Scripture tells me I need to love not giving people what they do deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving someone what they do deserve. Do you love that in your life? Do you love giving out mercy, compassion in action? This is what loving on people looks like in the body of Christ. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you. Not just because of the mercy that we've received, but the mercy we get to give out because we first received it. Lord, I am so grateful for you not giving me what I deserve. Because the man sitting here right now deserves hell and death for all of eternity. But because of your mercy upon me, I get grace instead. I have an opportunity to spend all of eternity with you. I'm secured, Lord. And so I'm so very grateful for that. Lord, help me to be more merciful in my day. Father, would you help us as a group to be known by love? We can be disciplined and have all kinds of Bible knowledge. And for sure, studying through Scripture this way adds knowledge of Scripture. But if we don't have love, we are a sounding brass or a banging gong. We've missed it. So, Lord, help us be a people that loves. And, Father, I'll pray this at least for me. Help me to start with the people that know me the best. Those that are inside the walls of my house, I struggle the most at being merciful towards them and being gracious towards them. Lord, help us to be a people that is merciful and loves it and gracious and loves it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jake and Michaela play, uh, we'll give you the opportunity to come up. You can take the elements for yourself and you can take them uh, back, and we will observe them together after this.